Yesterday, as Jean and I came back from our Saturday morning walk, I was faced with a difficult decision. Was I going to switch on the television and watch our athletes in South Korea? Or was I going to put the finishing touches to my sermon this morning? You may think after hearing the sermon that the athletes won. <laughs> but actually, it was a compromise. I pressed the record button and went into my study and spent some time on this message and then watched later. So I saw Lizzie Yarnold and... Laura Dees winning their medals in the afternoon and not in the morning. Didn't they do well? Wonderful achievement. Lizzie Arnold, European Olympic and world champion and now double Olympic champion. And Laura coming in the third place. What an achievement. But I found myself reflecting in the light of my message this morning about the cost of that achievement. And I looked up some of the websites of the athletes and saw all the rigorous training they put in. And nobody gets to that pinnacle of achievement without a tremendous lot of grueling hard work. We knew that, didn't we? But it's a good reminder of the cost of success. I've entitled my talk this morning, How Much Does It Cost? It's a frequent question on our lips, isn't it? whether we're suspicious of being caught out by a smart salesman who's going on and on about how wonderful his product is, and we say, yes, but how much is it going to cost? Or whether we're wistfully contemplating buying something that we really know is beyond our means. Perhaps like that well-known company that makes those expensive audio, that expensive audio equipment that does glossy adverts but fails to mention the price anywhere. There are some preachers, sadly, who are like smart salesmen. Come to Jesus and all your problems will be solved. In Brazil, where Jean and I worked for 10 years, the story went around, maybe apocryphal, I don't know, but the story went around of the American preacher who was accustomed to ending his talks by, put up your hand if you want to go to heaven enabled him to write back to his supporters saying dozens came to Christ in his meetings. Okay, if we talked about dishonest preaching, how much does it cost to become a Christian? How much does it cost? Jesus was not a dishonest preacher. Let's look at the passage read to us. We read in this passage, which is a very significant passage in Mark's Gospel, because up to this point, everything had been going so well for Jesus and his little band of disciples. It was the success story to end all success stories. Chapter 1, the people were amazed, we read. A new teaching with authority. He even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. Chapter 2, so many people were crowding around to hear Jesus' teaching. That men carrying a paralyzed man for healing couldn't get at Jesus. Chapter 3, we read, so many people were crowding around him, they nearly forced him into the lake. He had to get on a boat and push out from the shore to be able to address the crowds. 
And then we read that crowds were flocking around Jesus and his disciples so much that they didn't have time to eat. Then Jesus sends his disciples out and they come back rejoicing in demons cast out and sick people healed. And in chapter 7 we read that people cried out, he's done everything well, he even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Then we come to chapter 8. We come to chapter 8, the pivotal point of this shortest of our four Gospels. And the twelve close disciples are so carried away by this wonderful tide of success and their popularity, they're basking in the, in the sunlight of all the adulation of the crowds. And so when Jesus asks them, who do you say I am? Peter blurts out, you're the Messiah. And we can imagine Peter's thoughts, can't we? This is the one we've all been waiting for. This is the one who's going to turn things round for your downtrodden people. This is the one who's going to make us proud to be Jews again. And Jesus looks on his friends, we read. And I can imagine he looks upon them with love. And he begins to share with them. He begins to share with them that they've only got half of the story so far. For the first time, he's sharing with them thoughts that must have been burdening his heart all through his ministry. Teaching them, says the scripture, that it wasn't all going to be success. He began to teach them, we read, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. They only heard the first part. This teaching, which seemed to be blessing so many people, was going to be rejected. That his abounding life, that John says was the light of men, was going to be snuffed out. And that all this was going to be, not at the hands of the hated Romans, but Jesus' own people, the Jewish leaders, the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, they were going to be responsible for Jesus' persecution and death. And from these verses onward, a shadow falls across Mark's gospel. And it's the shadow of a cross. Just a couple of pages farther on, Mark tells us that Jesus enters Jerusalem for the last time. Not to be crowned king, but to be condemned to death, death on a cross. Can we just for a moment try to put ourselves in the shoes or the sandals of those 12 men and try to imagine the shock with which we heard those words? Everything had been going so well. And Jesus gently breaks the news to, to them that it's going to end in what will appear to be failure. Perhaps you can remember a time when everything had been going wonderfully well and you thought it was so wonderful being a Christian and something happened that suddenly it made you doubt everything, that suddenly it shook you to your very heart, it happens, doesn't it? Jesus knows what that's like. His friends had to face that reality. That being a Christian isn't all a success story. Praise God, there are wonderful times. 
But there is a downside. There is a cost. Thank God if you've experienced a time like that, you held on to your faith, otherwise you wouldn't be here this morning. But it taught you something, I guess. Because when we face adversity, it makes us the sort of people God wants us to be. To be able to face not only good times, but bad times too. I look upon you and I can see people who have come through very difficult times. And I praise God for you. Being a Christian is not about putting up your hand and getting a free entry to heaven. Being a Christian is not just about singing jolly worship songs. Christianity is also entering into what Paul called the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Theologians argue about words like that, wondering what Paul meant. I think it's quite easy, isn't it? That when we suffer, we're entering into a deeper fellowship with Jesus. I I think it's a wonderful way of seeing that. Paul wasn't asking for suffering. He was rejoicing that the sufferings that he knew lay ahead of him would bring him into a closer walk with the Saviour whom he loved. But back to Mark 8, where we read that when the disciples were listening, with a a certain amount of horror it must have been to what Jesus was telling them, it seems Peter tugged at Jesus' sleeve and pulls him aside. And he adopts the role of Jesus' counsellor. I expect we all at times have felt we are wiser than Jesus, haven't we? Sadly. We felt we know best. And he tugs at Jesus' sleeve and says, look, look, Master, let's not have any more of this defeatist talk. Everything's going so well for you. How do you think it can possibly end in failure? You're going to depress us all if you keep on like this. And Mark tells us that at hearing these words, Jesus looks at the eleven trudging along the road. And what did he think? What did he think? He thought, yes, it's about time that I shared this with all the twelve. And so he steals his heart against this flow of Peter's well-meaning advice, Peter going on and telling him he shouldn't speak like this, and he recognises where it comes from. Do you recognise where your discouragements come from? They don't come from that difficult person you know. They don't come from some problem with your job or with your family. Discouragements have a signature at the bottom of them, and it says Satan, who is trying to destroy our faith. We believe in Satan. We don't give him equal power with God, but we believe there is a power of evil who is trying to work against the purposes of God for you and for me. And so we recognise the signature. And Peter recognize, uh, Jesus recognises the signature as Peter, his friend, gives him well-meaning advice and he says, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. You're not seeing things through God's eyes, Peter. You're still thinking on a human level. And then Jesus, seemingly conscious that now he's reached a turning point in his ministry. He calls the crowd together, we read. 
people who loved him, people who probably regarded themselves as being disciples, being followers of Jesus. And he spells out to them in brutal honesty the cost of being his disciple. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? You may say to me, Mike, I don't want to be a disciple. I just want to be a Christian. I just want to come to church. Can I remind you of what we were told in our church weekend a few months ago? There were only three references to the word Christian in the whole of the New Testament. There were 98 references to disciple. God wants disciples. Christianity isn't just about making new friends. It isn't just about going to church instead of to the pub on Sunday. Christianity is about discovering the joy of a new way of living. Christianity is about putting Jesus first, becoming a follower of his, seeking to do what he wants me to do, seeking to put his plans and his will before my own. All those things we've been singing about in those wonderful worship songs. It's going to mean taking up a cross. Cross, not just something you hang around your neck. A cross is a brutal instrument of torture and death. It means losing my life. And the word, as you know, preachers have told you before, that word could be translated life or soul. It means all that is really me, the very deepest part of me, the most sensitive part of myself, all that is me, We lose my domination over that and we ask Jesus to come into our heart. Sounds a corny phrase, doesn't it? But it's very real. We ask Jesus to come into the centre of all our plans, our ambitions. We do what someone called their book that they wrote many years ago. Give up your small ambitions and take on board God's wonderful plan for your life. How much does it cost to be a Christian? It doesn't cost anything. And it costs everything. It costs nothing because Jesus himself bore the cost. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, said no to self, no to success, no to popularity, and submitted himself to be condemned unjustly without defending himself and to be crucified. And the Bible tells us that in that death of a sinless man, the only sinless man who's ever walked this earth, in the death of the Son of God, all our sins, all our shortcomings, all our failings, all our rebellion against God are wiped out, forgiven and forgotten. You don't have to carry them with you anymore. If you're carrying some burden from the past this morning, hand it over to God right at this moment in the quietness of your heart. Say, Lord, I'm going to leave that at your feet and thank God he has promised to forgive you and to forget. It doesn't cost anything. The forgiveness of God is free. 
And yet to become a Christian costs everything. It costs everything. The sense of giving up self and allowing Jesus Christ to take hold of my life and in his power and love to make me a new creature. The Bible says that in Christ we are new creations. Jesus promises us life. Life in all its fullness, as the NIV translates it. Abundant life. Not abundant in the sense of success, of glory, of acclaim. Success in the day-to-day joy of knowing Jesus Christ living in me. It's wonderful, isn't it? It's a wonderful experience. But it costs something. It means I go God's way and not my way. Living a counter-cultural life of generosity, of purity, and of self-denial in a world that is increasingly obsessed with money, with sex, and with power. It means being known not for how clever we are, not for how successful we are, but for how much we are like Jesus. Discovering our true self, our soul, all that is within me and within you that God wants to bring to fruition and allowing Christ to make of us something beautiful for God. You will have seen that this message is part of the series, The Love of God. You may be wondering what this has to do with the love of God. It has everything to do with the love of God. Because all that I'm saying this morning is summed up in that wonderful verse that so many of you know by heart. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Yes, there is a cost of commitment to Christ that goes far beyond just giving up chocolate or sweets or whatever for Lent. It means that as we enter this time of Lent, this time when you may go to special services, when perhaps you are following special Bible readings, it's reflecting, firstly, on the huge cost to Jesus and all that he went through because he loved me and he loved you so much. And to reflect on what he is asking of me so that I may be more like Jesus, more identified with him, and that we might, by living in his power and in his joy and in newness of life, that we might be a blessing to our families, to our communities, to our church.